Welcome to the Medical Mnemonist Podcast, brought to you by Med School Coach. Each episode, take a journey into the top techniques for medical mnemonics, study skills, board exam tips, and accelerated learning in higher education. Now, here's your host, Chase DeMarco. Welcome back, lifelong learners, to the second part of this mini-series on the MedEdge method. So, if you listened to the first episode, we kind of went into what the method is and how it started from our book, Read This Before Medical School. And now we're expanding on some of the basic outlines, this giving you a structure to follow for your studies, for your resources, for many different areas of academic and really life skills in general. So in this episode, we're really going to cover the study skills and which ones work, why they work, and also how play can really be influential and beneficial to your studying. And I think it's important to point out that there can be some differences in how we view learning, really, from an academic standpoint and a practical standpoint. So we can learn a lot from cognitive and learning psychology on how the brain works, how memory works, how attention works, all of these different aspects that play a part in the effectiveness of our learning. They work synergistically with each other often. But then there's also the practical application, and that's usually where students can struggle a little more. It's a skill. It takes some time to develop, and you have to know when you're not setting it up properly as well. Otherwise, you're going to keep making the same mistakes or have the same inefficiencies, which, at least for a higher education long-term degree, really adds up over time. We kind of discussed that in the last episode, where little inefficiency here or lack of attention built up over two years of studying really is cumulative. It adds up to a significant decrease in where you could have been. And we're not aiming for perfection, but you know, those little upgrades, those little benefits, little increases in our ability here and there can also add up. So we're going to work on that a little bit. So in the first episode, I said there are kind of three steps to start with, and that's sort of looking inside, look internally at yourself and your abilities, your weaknesses, your strengths, set goals, really know where you want to go and why you want to get there. Not just generic goals, but I want to eventually be in this degree, or I want to be in this profession, something really concrete. You can use smart goals if you would like, which we've discussed many times in the past, and then setting a plan to get there. So when you're looking introspectively, when you're looking inside, it's really difficult sometimes to point out which points in our studies are maybe the least efficient, where our weaknesses are, how to really approach getting better at those. We don't like to think of our weaknesses, and we tend to actually gravitate towards the activities and the materials that we know better because, well, it's a strength. It makes us feel better when we're getting this set of questions right, or when we go over these notes and it's familiar. But that's not actually helping us grow. We need to focus more on those weak points. And then, of course, with setting the goals, are we doing this just to pass a class or a test or whatever the near short-term benchmark is? Or what is the ultimate long-term goal? And then we can work backwards from that long-term goal to see which short-term goals we need to achieve to reach that end main goal. But then even having a goal, really setting the plan is the difficult part, especially if you're thinking of, well, I'm going to be in medical school for the next four years. Let's say if you're just starting out, planning out four years of academics, especially with topics as complex as medicine, not always easy. But 
at least having a rough outline, you can always come back to later. You can adjust, you can make changes, and you will. You'll have to. Now, for those that have been listening to this show for a long time, you might recall an episode, granted, it was a long time ago, from Megan Samaraki at the Learning Scientist podcast. And you can go back and listen to that interview I did with Dr. Samaraki. It was really informative, and it's from a group of cognitive psychologists that specifically look at learning and learning in academic settings. Now, it seems like a lot of these researchers and the papers were more towards primary care than higher education, but a lot of the same principles should apply, at least as far as I know. I'm not the expert, you can ask them. But <laughs> you can go back and listen to that episode. I want to say it was maybe episode seven, so quite a while ago. And there are a couple of topics that they really discussed and why these topics work so well, and that there's a huge paper done, really like a systematic review of learning tools. And a couple of those we're going to cover here, which we've covered before, but let's go over them real briefly. You can also get more details of this in our book, Read This Before Medical School. So if you do care to check that out, by all means, we do appreciate that. It does go back into creating more materials. So just consider it. But interleaving is a topic that constitutes one of these really effective learning techniques, these tools. And that's being able to change up the materials. So instead of maybe doing math for two or three hours and just getting burnt out on it and then switching over to science and doing that until you burn out on it, it's usually more beneficial to switch things up. Have smaller increments of multiple subjects. If we we're talking about undergrad study, you might have chemistry and physics, maybe calculus or some sort of math class at that point, and maybe an elective here or there. Well, if you were to maybe do 20 to 30 minutes of each one, interchange them, switch them out, usually it's going to give you more of a break, gives your mind the ability to digest the material in the background kind of subconsciously as you're covering new material, and then you can come back to it later on. And it might also correlate in different ways to the other subjects that you were studying, the other classes you're taking. So kind of networking all of these different classes, these different topics together is going to be much more beneficial for getting a comprehensive view of the material. So those are some reasons that this could potentially work for you. Implement it in your own studies by just taking shorter segments of studying and constantly switching them out. And it doesn't need to be like an ABC, ABC, ABC order. You can mix up the order. A, B, D, B, C, A, you know, just whatever you want to do. There's not really a ultimate correct way to do this. It is going to be quite variable depending on your materials and depending on your study abilities and past experiences with the material. Concrete examples are another really great tool that are underutilized. And I think it's important to really do this on your own in medical school because there's so much self-directed learning. If you can come up with your own concrete examples about a concept, it's going to stick much stronger than possibly a concrete example that your instructor gave you during class. So if you want to think of balloons as the lungs, you can really conceptually give a concrete example of how a balloon inflates and deflates and how your lungs inflate and deflate. But also picture the balloon in a closed container. Maybe it's a little water balloon and you cut off the top of a two liter soda bottle and you stick this in there. So now it's in a closed container, kind of like your chest cavity. Now you can use the negative pressure aspect being in this closed cavity 
that is going to be more relative to how the lung actually works. So just think of concrete examples such as that, or maybe the arterial pressure in your cardiovascular system being similar to a garden hose. And when you put your thumb over the tip of a garden hose, you know you can spray that much further and it'll be a thinner stream with much more velocity to it. You could think of clogged arteries in the same way. So come up with these concrete examples that are more intuitive to you, and it'll make it easier to really understand and remember later on more complex and nuanced material within the human body and within medicine. There's also dual coding, which I interpret dual coding in a little different way than maybe some of the other material does, but I think medical mnemonics, as our six-part miniseries that we did recently, really constitute dual coding to some degree, and you're mixing different concepts or different words with different images, and by connecting these, it can form a stronger association. So if you have the word stop in front of you, it's going to be very different than if you actually see a stop sign. Or in our medical mnemonics, we're using more abstract visual aids, but I think the concept is still relatable in that aspect. We did cover mnemonics to a great extent in the previous six-episode miniseries, so go back and check those out to see all the tools, all the homeworks, all the practices that we did during that quick miniseries, that mini-audio course. And then, of course, there is spaced repetition, which combines two very strong effects, the spacing effect and rehearsal practice. Now, we've beaten this like a dead horse for the past two and a half years on this show. It is a cornerstone to a lot of medical education the past few years, something that we can also implement with our mnemonics training. So we don't need to go into great detail there. It's spacing out the amount of time that you study between different sessions. So studying it in a day from now, in a couple hours from now, a day from now, a week from now, a month from now, is going to be more beneficial than just cramming before the exam. Another one that we haven't really covered before, so this might be a good way to pique your interest a little, is inquiry-based learning. And I had completely forgot about this until coming across an article recently. I actually taught a after-school program for, I think it was K through 8 grade or something like that. And one of the main themes of that science course, that science after-school program, was inquiry-based learning. So it was, instead of giving the answers to the students, really try to get them to inquire, to ask questions, and direct their questions too. And this is something that we do if we're getting pimped on the wards or something like that, where a physician will ask the students, what's going on with this? How does this work? But it doesn't necessarily happen as much in the basic sciences, for instance, and it doesn't happen in all clinical settings either. And in fact, some students really hate when it's done in that high-stress environment, and a lot of physicians don't really like doing it in that high-stress environment either. But that doesn't mean you can't use inquiry-based learning independently as well. Just ask questions. Ask them to yourself. Ask them to your plant. It's fine to not have a specific individual to discuss them with. If you do, if you have a study partner, all the better. But asking deeper questions, asking why this works that way, what happens if I did that instead of that? What happens if this were to interrupt the process? And we all have the ability to think this way, but often we'll just kind of think of something deep and then, oh, I don't know it, let it go. Let it get out of our minds and not come back to it or not do the research to actually answer the question for ourselves. So having that kind of inquiry-based learning can really express deeper learning and creativity 
in your exploration and make the material just more interesting because you're getting answers to specific questions that you want to know about. All right, we have two more things to discuss before the key takeaways and the homework for this episode. The next learning style is experimental learning, which makes sense to most of us just intuitively. If you have done it before, you're going to know how to do it better the next time. The age-old phrase is see one, do one, teach one in medicine, especially in surgery. But this counts for, well, all of medicine. And it's really difficult in your early years, especially when you haven't gone into the clinical setting yet, to gain this experiential learning. Luckily, there are a lot of technologies coming out from simulated learning to tools and toys and other things you can buy on Amazon or whatever web store you want. And you can practice different techniques. You can practice little things. The example that comes to mind is practicing suturing on like an orange or something at home. But find ways to do this in other areas as well. Maybe that's through making the balloon and two liter bottle lung design that I was just discussing earlier. Or maybe it's grabbing a friend or a sibling and trying to draw out where their bones are on their skin. <laughs> now, they might not appreciate that, or maybe it'll just be a fun exercise. But using some sort of hands-on experiential learning can really benefit your learning for the long term. Of course, those looking for shadowing or observerships or clinical rotation experience or clinical research, there is findarotation.com, which should be hopefully actually out in a couple of weeks. I know I've been saying that a lot. But it will be sort of like the Airbnb of clinical rotations, giving you options to find different clinical settings near you, potentially, especially as it grows, and be able to gain some more clinical experience and experiential experience and learning through these clinical sites. So I would recommend checking that out. And if there's nothing in your area, when you check it out, do come back every once in a while, every couple of weeks, because it's going to be growing for some time. All right, and the last topic here is play. So play is very confusing. <laughs> when you ask someone what is play, you'll get a wide diversity of answers. And in fact, in the book Play by Dr. Stuart Brown, it actually shows some of the experts on the topic of play don't even agree with what play means and how to describe it. But they can agree on certain topics within the broad category of play. And it's interesting to see how those that play more often not only are shown to create new neuronal pathways quicker than their peers, they develop greater social skills, they are less likely to end up in the prison system, the being incarcerated. That's for a multitude of different reasons that are partially explained there. It also went into the famine. I think it was in Ireland, potato famine, and they saw a degeneration of IQ three generations later. So if your grandparents were a part of this terrible time in history, it is likely that your parents and yourself might have suffered some negative repercussions from it. And we could probably see how this actually still relates to this day in many parts of the world being negatively influenced by terrible circumstances. But let's go back into play. So it is something that you can experiment with a little bit yourself. And First, you probably want to note what your play personality is. And you can Google play personality and it'll bring up a sheet from this book. That's all I did. And there's a couple of different ones. So depending on what you like to do, what your strengths are, and again, what your personality type is, then you might find certain play activities more interesting than others. 
Do you like sitting at home and playing card games or board games? Or do you like to go out and create something with your hands? Maybe go rummage through the forest or build a tree fort or a pillow fort. There are a lot of different personalities there, so finding one that is more amenable to you might make it easier to find activities that are enjoyable in this play state. And I'm bringing this up because play is a great way to stay motivated to learn longer and to learn more effectively and collaborate with others as long as you can find a way to do so. There are several different card games and other medical games out there that you can try out. I know recently I had Polyus Moy on, who is the co-founder of Table Rounds, the card game. I haven't played it yet. I'm really sad to say I don't have anyone to play it with lately, but it does look very interesting. Kind of, I want to say it's like dominoes for medical cards. But there are a few other games out there too. If you were to search out card games or medical games, several would pop up. And if that's not your style, then maybe get more creative. Try something else. If you like sports, maybe basketball, you could play the game called Horse, where you shoot a ball from different areas and the other person has to make it from that same area, or they get a letter. And once you reach spelling out Horse, then you lose. Well, you could do this a different way, and you have to answer a medical question first, and then you have to shoot the ball, or throw a ball, or kick a ball, whatever it is. You can really experiment with this and make your own rules. And you probably wouldn't be the first student in medical school to make a drinking game out of learning materials either. Just throwing it out there. Just do so responsibly if you choose to pick that particular learning pathway. Maybe you're more artistically or musically inclined. Make up a song that has all the different pathways or different bones or some sort of way to remember material, and then maybe share it with your classmates. Draw out a depiction, a mind map, something like that can also be a form of play. So these are just some examples. You can get creative, you can discuss it with each other, and actually just look up online non-medical related games, and then try to adapt it for medical material. Okay, so I think that's about it for the different topics I really wanted to cover. We'll get to the homework in just a second, but really the key takeaways here are there are a lot of evidence-based techniques. You know, we covered these with Dr. Samaraki, and there are some that are really not as evidence-based, like mnemonics, which we covered a lot. Evidence is getting there, but not as strong yet. But the problem is most of these are not really taught in school, as we've discussed the past couple of years on the show. So you do have to teach yourself a little bit and you have to collaborate with students or find common threads, forums, other people interested in these topics in which to help point out where you can improve your skill. Just learning the technique or the tool is not always enough. You need to receive feedback and make sure you're doing it properly or how you can do it better. And then knowing how the brain works can really help guide our self-directed learning. What do we want to do and why? What are our plans? What are our goals? How can we make this more interesting, more fun, keep our attention stronger? All of these cognitive psychology and learning psychology aspects can really help benefit our learning in other realms as well. All right, all of that being said, I do want to give you a little homework here. If you did the homework from last week, maybe continue this on in the same journal, same paperwork, keep it all together. But it's pretty simple. I want you to actually write out your goals this week. Your academic goals, long-term and short. If you've not done this anywhere else, then now's the time to do it. If you have done it, you can just utilize what you've already written or journaled in the past. But then also make a plan. Make a plan of resources, of timelines, of 
different types of activities that you're going to implement and how much time you're going to dedicate to this resource or this technique or this study period. And make sure to add in a lot of buffer time. You will almost undoubtedly need it. You will need more breaks. You will run into complicated material that takes two or three times longer to get through than you thought it was going to. So add in a lot of buffers. I would say overuse buffer time, actually, because if you buffer in that extra time and then you get done soon, you could always continue on to the next section. But if you scheduled everything too close and then you run out of time or something happens, you wasted a whole day because your tire popped and then you ran into a street light and spent the rest of the day either hopefully just at the car shop and not the hospital. Well, now your whole schedule's messed up. So do add a lot of buffer time in there. And then try each of the techniques that we've discussed. And we didn't go into great detail here, so you can go back to, I believe, episode seven. We'll put in the show notes for you. And try all of the techniques that we discussed there, all seven of the effective learning techniques. And also the mnemonics techniques, if you haven't listened to that many series yet. Do try those out as well. You'll start seeing what works for you, which are more enjoyable, but also which are more effective. And that's much more important. And lastly, and most enjoyably, hopefully, is figure out what play personality you have. And it's not necessarily going to be just one. You can have a mixture of different ones, but utilize that play personality to create or research at least one activity that is going to be fun that you can make into a study activity and implement it. So write these down, journal everything, of course, keep monitoring, keep improving, and we'll see you next week. The Medical Mnemonist Podcast is powered by Med School Coach. To access Med School Coach services, including USMLE tutoring and residency admissions advising, visit our website at medschoolcoach.com. Good luck as you prepare for your board exams, and we hope you tune in again next time.